furniture gate at 11C Frowning Street. Only a matter of time, I guess, for the male queen vulture of petty wines and the fourth Viscount Rothermere, who's very high up in biscuits and billions, very own Marie Antoinette and First Lady Hopeful, the delightful Sarah Vine, to spew up some irrelevance on BBC Radio 4's Today programme. Was I dreaming? No. Mrs Gove likened the Milliband's IKEA kitchen to a communist-era housing block in Minsk, which was nice. So we absolutely know that she will not be rifling the wallpaper sample books at Dorking's carpet land. She likes a well-turned-out gaff. Some of us do. Now wrong here. But the Prime Minister can't be expected to live in a skip, she trilled and banged on about pink or over-green sofas. Shriek! The UK's rough sleepers, child hunger and family poverty figures have soared during a pandemic. A young footballer got involved in a policy swerve to feed kids out of term. Small businesses are foundering, but we're all about a decidedly uninvolved and flailing part-time Prime Minister's right to spend, claim, borrow 170000 to clart up his gaff. Shaps assures us that it's Tory donors' desires to preserve historic buildings, and this is all that matters. So bring on the rattan decorative owls, that's what I say. Or the haunted Victorian hat stand. Jacob Rees-Mogg himself, soon to be remaindered. Not. Or is it remaindered? Definitely not. This male-linked kerfuffle has got Tufton Street tanking written all over it. Never mind Johnson and Carrie's trompe l'oeil bogotry wallpaper. Johnson's own particular vista, three-dimensional or otherwise, is of bog-all use to the far-righters these days, and he knows it. Bugger me sideways over the drinks, Charlie Alexander the Greatest. He was ratty today, louder than the raspberry damask pleating where once was pelmet, simple pelmet, beige, but no sweat. John Lewis actually sells skips, which is good to know. Occasional tables, the whole fluffing, fecking lot of them. Catherine Deneuve ate my peanuts. Italy, March 1984. The Open Gate Club, Rome, via San Nicola da Tolentino. The woman with the very deep voice and the astonishing eyes had elegantly positioned herself just at my left elbow. Oh, Sinatra, anything by Frank. Come on, darling, anything, darling. Sinatra, maybe one of those, you know, misery-drenched ones. Or, oh, you know, that gardener woman. That gardener woman, she broke his heart in so many places. I watched Monica stare suddenly and quite blankly across the piano, where she caught Alessandro's eye. Why do you look at me like that? Ale, ale, why? Jan is in a romantic mood tonight, aren't you, darling, Jan? 
You know Catherine Deneuve is coming in later. She hates me, hates me. I like her. She brings her own lights. She brings her own lighting on a stand with wheels. She brings two men, thin, in dark clothes to light her in this piano bar. Sing something in very bad French, Jan. I will laugh so much. Monica settled into her drink. Oh, that gardener woman. She tutted and she looked at me. I am a fool on the hill to want you. No, I am a fool on the hill to want you. I am a fool to want you, no hill. That gardener woman, my mind saw pictures. I wasn't that interested in Frank Sinatra. I'd, I had a few cassettes, but I was amused that Francis Albert had had his heart broken by a girl who trimmed his rose bushes and watered his lawn. It was much later that I'd realised that she meant Ava Gardner, that gardener woman, not some hired hand at Frank Sinatra's Vegas bungalow. Since I'd arrived in Rome to do eight months of cabaret and piano bar work, with a mini tour of Italy and some extremely dodgy TV shows to come, I was loving this place, the Open Gate Club. It had originated in the late 50s, the Dolce Vita years, so beautifully captured by Federico Fellini in, of course, La Dolce Vita, and those sexy pictures by Marcello Gepetti, now adorning this revitalised for the 80s nightclub and piano bar in central Rome, footsteps away from the Trevi Fountain, and a mile and a half from my ridiculous hotel that overlooked the Villa Borghese, near the Spanish steps. I'd been in Rome a month, and it had captured my young heart, mind and soul. I was thinner, which is unusual, because I was in Italy. Silvano had picked me up from the airport, Fiumicini, and camply eyed my scruffy early 80s jib, as they say in Swansea, the cut of my jib, as Molly Parkin used to say. Well, my jib was King's Road, Johnson's vintage American 1950s, mixed with 80s pinto, bowie pleated, Bags in raspberry red, box jackets, narrow ties, brooches, diamante earrings dangling down, suede brothel creepers with leopard skin tops, mixed in with punky jumpers, bondage trousers, chains and studs, and my revered Vivian Westwood pirate shirt and red bondage trousers. Rome, for all its pompous declaration of style and sartorial heft, to me seemed kind of firmly wedged in that tacky bit of the early 80s where chrome featurettes on nasty boucle padded jackets jostled with stonewashed skinnies and jean jackets and dreadful sweaters. I mean, dreadful, dreadful sweaters. They were my nemesis. My head said vintage, but my heart screamed punk. And that was how it worked. Silvana. Oh man, you look terrible. Ludo and me, we will take you to Via Condotti in the morning. We will make you look like a star. Great, Silvano, cheers. Monica had struck up a conversation with two American guys and they were all three now drinking the same jangly brown drinks and I was being ignored. 
I started my way, which normally got the entire room going, but you know what? Nobody was listening tonight. I didn't mind in those days. I was living in a gorgeous suite of rooms. They loved me at this club, but only if I didn't sing Life on Mars, didn't wear my strange Stranglers t-shirt, did play Strangers in the Night, and did accept every drink offered, for this was money into the till. Silvana knew everyone. Rome in the early to mid-80s felt like it was struggling to remain beautiful, to keep its elegance and its enthusiasm and its earthiness. I loved Café Greco, the Greek café, at the foot of the steps, and I sat in there for hours on end in the late afternoon, wondering which table Oscar Wilde or Ibsen or Schopenhauer had their coffees on, which pastry Lawrence Ferlinghetti had enjoyed, and more recently, which waiter Monica had chosen for my Sunday walk date. Oh, look, Jan, 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 look, 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 I think him. He looks clean. Monica had just done a film called Flirt. It was in English, but I think it was made with French money. For this amazing, beautiful, cheeky woman who only wanted the saddest songs was, I eventually learned, Monica Vitti. She was one of Italy's greatest living actresses. Her best work was in the past when she was directed by Michelangelo Antonioni, early to mid-60s. I liked her instantly and enormously, and she seemed to like me too. Jan, Jan. It was a whole fortnight before I realised quite how formidable and beloved this fantastic woman was. Modesty Blaze seemed to be one of her favourites. Johnny Dankworth had done the music, and Joseph Losey, the American director, had scared and enchanted her. He was a political animal she told me one night after a jangly brown drink had gone in. Catherine Deneuve was in the building. It was raining so hard outside, but it was quite hot. I hadn't started my shift in the basement yet. Monica told me that Catherine had just made a film with David Bowie and the press were all over open gate for the promotion of The Hunger. Silvano came into the piano bar, clapping his hands. Okay, okay, everyone. Okay, positions, please. Anna, Jan. Anna, who looked after the unfeasibly grand ladies and gents bathrooms and who had mints, brushes, cologne, lip gloss, cigarettes, condoms, all for sale at her little booth, raised her eyebrows and she grinned at me. Catherine Deneuve swanned down into the bar on her own. And then behind her, a light, a bright light on a stand, and two boys either side doing tiny little footsteps down the steps like tiny little ponies in a tiny little world. It was surreal and rather beautiful at the same time. She beelined the little stage where I was sat poised and rigid with nerves in my shit outfit, bought very kindly from a shiny shop on Via Condotti by Luca and Silvano that morning. She was just gorgeous. You speak English? Yes, I do, I managed. I'd been snacking on one of the little bowls of nuts 
symmetrically arranged around the piano every night. Do you mind? Blood-red nails, thumb and index, delicately went for a peanut. My agent said to me, never be seen eating in public. She was whispering in my ear, now play me something. Do you know any David Bowie? I just made a film with him, you know. I puffed up. Life on Mars. I knew every twist and turn of it. F major, weird chords. Catherine seemed quite pleased, but it was all over. She didn't stay until the first chorus, you know. Sailors. Oh, shut up, you show off. Deneuve, self-lit and gracious, had swung back up the stairs to a welcoming reception. It was Monica again. I sensed a tinge of something. This great legendary actress was not really, well, as huge. Her own Dolce Vita had soured just a little bit in those years. Last year, out of the blue, I got an email from Silvano saying he'd see me on a live stream and how he remembered those wonderful times and how sadly Monica Vitti could barely remember anything at all these days. She was almost 90. I was transported to a magical sun-drenched day in her friend's tiny courtyard garden just near Piazza Navone. Monica was in full bloom, dancing around the immaculate and the moneyed, her head tossed back and ecstatic at the sheer beauty of it all. She was 55, younger than I am now, and to me then one of the most beautiful, ardent and difficult souls I would ever meet. There was a terrible keyboard in the corner under the gazebo. It was Rossellini's son's birthday. Play Sinatra, and you know, one of those sad ones. I'd learned I'm a fool to want you in A minor. She laughed, tossed her honey-coloured hair, stared at me, and then stared at the clear, clear sky, and then back to me. Oh, I love you, Jan, but don't make me cry, not like all the others. Thus spake the Secretary of State for utter rubbish, James Cleverly of Braintree. Braintree. Cleverly, not even joking. Unsurprisingly rode out on all of the media this morning, James Cleverly from Braintree has transparently fellated his way to the middle. And he joins co-fellators Zahawi, Truss, Coffee, and the ludicrous Nadine Dorries, who earlier had tweeted that Johnson's success in creating 180,000 jobs for Hartlepool meant that you should vote Tory. This is a city that comes in at about 94,000. So it's magic, that. They join the dismalry of other careerist mediocres currently primed to deflect from the embarrassment that is the Prime Minister himself. Some are with flag, some without. 
And if none of the above is available, enter the never-knowingly ministerial or caring Minister for Care, Helen Waitley. Cleverly was on sparklingly rubbish form this morning, and this was his jam. For PM big baby powders to have broken ministerial code, there must firstly be an inquiry into whether PM big baby powders has broken ministerial code, then a report to see whether PM big baby powders has broken ministerial code, then a review to see whether PM Big Baby Powders agrees with the conclusion. Agrees? Agrees? I don't remember that bit when I sped through the lights near Lambeth Bridge. I seem to remember being in full agreement after my awareness course. The way of this code is not an untruth, sadly. Although it sounds like instant dictatorsville, under this fairly recent watertight piece of intergovernmental legislation that began its watery ways way back in the 80s, it's presently curated and controlled by, guess who? PM Big Baby Powders, the ultimate arbiter. And if Johnson had failed to request the resignation of Home Secretary and proven bully Patel after it was revealed that she'd broken the self-same sodding code, then I think we can all safely assume that he is hardly going to sack, well, himself. James Cleverly from Braintree failed to clear this one up this morning, obviously. Not Even Music, written and read by Ian Shaw, was produced by Jamie Safir. Original music by Tristan Ryder. Oh,